Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are uh, in Parshat Vayetze this morning. Uh, because we're in the first third of every Parsha, that means we'll begin at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Uh, 28, ver- chapter 28, verse 10. 159 in the women's Torah commentary. 166 in Eitz Chaim. 166 in Eitz Chaim, the red book. So uh, we are now beginning the real story of Yaakov. So, you know, we had, we had the twins and what was going on between them in last week's Parsha. We're now getting the real story, the beginning of the real development of the character Yaakov. Um, so we're going to start with the sentence that says, Vayetze Yaakov mi Beersheva, right? So he sets out, he leaves Beersheva. Uh, why is he leaving? Why is Yaakov leaving Beersheva? Yaakov who loves to dwell in the tent and hang out with mom. Because Esau, Esau wants to kill him. His twin brother wants to kill him because of what happened in the part of last week's Parsha we did not read. What happens in last week's Parsha? Why does Esau want to kill him? He took his birthright. He took his and birthright. And he stole the bracha from Yitzchak. Right? There are two different things. There's the birthright and there's the blessing. He tricks Esav, essentially, or manipulates Esav out of both of them. Um, and because of that, Esav is now murderous. So Rivka, Yaakov's mother, says to him, you need to get the heck out of Dodge because um, your brother is rageful. Let him calm down. Right, let him settle down, and then you'll come back, is the implication, right? So, um, and she needs to figure out a way for Isaac, for Yitzchak, to let him go, to let Yaakov go. You don't, you don't leave without permission of the patriarch unless you don't want to come back, right? So how is she going to get permission? So she essentially tells um, her husband, Yitzchak, Rivka tells Yitzchak, that, that she can't stand it anymore, these foreign wives, her daughters-in-law who are Canaanite. She wants that Yaakov should marry someone from her clan, someone from Haran. So, so she sets it up for Yitzchak to say, well, then send him to Haran to get a wife. So she once again <coughs> manipulates the situation so that she gets what she wants. But what happens in life whenever we get what we want? We get. Uh, careful what you wish for, careful what you manipulate, because you may surely get it. So she, in fact, manipulates him getting the blessing, and then he's in trouble, which means she has to separate from him. And when she says, go away, you'll, you'll wait till Esau comes down. By the way, Rivka never sees her son again. She never sees Yaakov again. It cost her everything. To make him the patriarch, to make him the successor, cost her her son. So she got what she 
worked for, and it meant she lost essentially the whole, I mean, I'm not saying only, because of course she wants him to become the patriarch, and, and maybe she's willing to sacrifice whatever it takes for that to happen, so I'm not saying she doesn't gain anything, but it's not as simple as if I just manipulate the situation, it'll come out and everything will be exactly as I thought it would be. This is life, right? Torah talks about real life. Um, now we're going to see what the consequences are for Yaakov, right? So he's also going to begin uh, a huge journey about learning, um, about you think you got what you want, and right? You're, you're not clear about what that's going to mean about who you become. When I say he's going to go from Beersheba to Haran, before we even start, I just want you to have a context, because it can be deceiving the way we read Torah, because we're not from the neighborhood, Right? So we don't understand what that means. So, what page am I on? One minute. So here's a map of the ancient Near East. Yes? So if you look here, you can see here's the Sinai Peninsula, yes? The, the triangle. Here's the coast of what's now Israel, yeah? Okay, so that gives you here, here's what we're dealing with in terms of Israel. Right? Okay. So he's going from Beersheba, right here in the geographical center of Israel. Where's Haran? Here's Haran. Wow. Now, any of you who have ever traveled in Israel, have you been in Beersheba? Probably not even that far south, many of you. You've been as far south as Masada, right? Beersheba south of there. But imagine going from, so on your trips that you've done the country, if you've gone from Beersheba or you've gone from anywhere in the south, how long did it take you to get up north? Right? So it's, a, it's a schlep to get up north. Then this is Lebanon. He's up in Lebanon, right? He's going over towards Syria. He's in Syria, essentially. So going from southern Israel up and over, right? It is not like he's going from New York to New Jersey to get a wife. Uh, there's an expression from Dan to Beersheba, meaning it's very, very long. From Dan to Beersheba, right? So even though in American terms, it, you know, getting a, up across the country is not that, yeah. that big a deal. Walking? Yes. Walking! Right? So... In the heat, what else? Tell me what else. Because this is all important for us because we're just going to get one sentence. He set out and he got there. What, what the heat? Water. Not Water. Danger. What's the danger, Mickey? Well, you have all kinds of uh, uh, tribes, for one thing. And why is that dangerous for Yaakov? He's from the area. Why, why is this dangerous for him? He's not from every area that he's going to go through. So he's, he's a stranger. stranger. He's an alien in the places where he doesn't come from. Even the area he comes from, he, he's alone. He's not with anybody. He, they don't mention anybody who's going with He's him. not like, you know, a, presumably he took enough, you know, that he would have on the way. But that is a really long journey. And if you don't have a whole caravan... 
you know, and people traveled in a caravan for a reason. It wasn't just the goods that you were carrying that required all of those camels and horses or donkeys or whatever you're using at the time. It's safety. You cannot move through those kinds of territories alone without being extraordinarily vulnerable. And he was pretty weak, too. He wasn't an outdoor guy. He wasn't Asav. He was not the hunter, right? Dafka, the tent dweller, is the one going to Haran, not the hunter. So all of this we have to hold as what's happening to Yaakov when we read, he set out from Beersheba and arrives at Haran. So maybe it's not an accident that the tent dweller had to round himself out in order to become a leader of the You think? It's mm-hmm. exactly what we're dealing with. We're dealing with, we're dealing with the hero narrative. We're dealing with the motif of, in order to become, truly become the patriarch, he, he stole or manipulated to get, the, to get hired for the contract to be signed. That does not mean that he's the senior rabbi. <laughs> so um, he, he, he has to... He, thank you, Mickey. He has to... He's got the rights to it now, but he isn't... The patriarch yet. He has to go through, right, his own developmental process in order to become that. We're going to look at Aviva Zorenberg, who goes into gorgeous uh, detail about exactly that. Like this leaving, right, what, what is, what, what, what that's really about. I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Um, he stole the birthright and the blessing. I, the birthright I understand. What's the big deal about the blessing? So it's a good question. Um, we go into detail about it when we study that part of the Parsha, because it's, it's a huge thing. But in short, um, at the deathbed, what Yitzchak blesses his son with is absolute prosperity, dominion over everyone, essentially, you know, to become the patriarch of the clan. And in the ancient Near East, those kinds of blessings have power. And they can't be retracted. Like once they're out there, it's done. That's why Esav is murderous. Because he comes in and Yitzchak can't go, oops, move over, Jacob. I'll deal with you later. Kneel, Esav. He there, there's nothing, he says, there's nothing I can do. He's already made Yaakov, with his words, more powerful than he can do for Esav. And now Esav is stuck. So um, that's why. They're two different things. But it turns out Yitzchak wasn't on his deathbed, which is also another story. All right, so um, where are we? First line. Where did I say? First line. I lost my bleed. Okay, so who would like to begin reading at 28.10? Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. All right, that's it. <laughs> Jacob, <laughs> Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. Okay, go, oh, he's not there yet, though. Okay, go ahead. He came upon a certain place and stopped there for the night for the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream. A stairway was set on the ground, and its top reached to the sky, and angels of God were going up and down on it. 
And the Lord was standing beside him, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The ground on which you are lying I will assign to you and to your offspring. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and your descendants. Remember, I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Okay. <laughs> We're going to talk about that, huh? All right, so... Vayetze Yaakov mi Sheva. So already Aviva Zorenberg points to this word, Vayetze. This is different from Avraham's Lech Lecha. Avraham heeds a call to set out towards something, right? Like it's his journey. Vayetze Yaakov, and Yaakov left. Yaakov went out, but it's not. Right? Out of some sense of being called, he's being pushed out of his place by both parents. Both parents are pushing their son out of the house and out of the region. So he's just missing at home. Right? Rather than the sense of a fullness of, of call. Yitzchak has his wife come to him. He stays home. He's in the place where his father has journeyed to, that they're going to make theirs. That's the promise anyway, that it's going to be theirs. And, and everything comes to Yitzchak. With Yaakov, he's, he's kicked out of place, out of the place that they're supposed to inherit. He, he's kicked out. So we get a lot of these um, action words. Vayetze, right? So he goes out, Vayelech, and he journeys. Vayivg'ah bamakom. And now we get this other verb, which, um, which is to encounter something, but it's as if you're rounding a corner and someone's coming the other way, and you slam into each other. That is the sense of Vayivg'ah, right? It's, it's like you smack into something that's coming at you. What's the word? Vayivg'ah. So he, he slams into Makom, right. Like the English is like, and he happened right. upon, right? Like it's, it's a stronger sense in Hebrew of he ran smack into Makom, place, a place. All right, so Makom, tell me what you know about Makom. A place where God dwells. In the ancient Near East, makom refers often to sacred place. So a place where the deity, right, is in concentrated relationship to the place and to the people of the place. All right? So what else do we know about makom in Hebrew? Isn't it the place where the Torah dwells? It is the place where Torah will you know, we say the place from where Torah will emanate, um, but it's, it's more about God's presence there. Hamakom. If I say hamakom, what do I mean? Place is also a name for God. It's that closely connected for us. Right? That <laughs> Ruben's going, what? Um, 
It's, it's that closely associated, the word place meaning a holy place, that it is a name for God in rabbinic Hebrew. We call God hamakom, the place. When someone loses someone at the funeral, you make two lines and the family moves through those two lines and what do we say to them as they move through the two lines? Hamakom yinachem etchem. May the place, meaning God, comfort you. In that instance, we, that's the name we use of God in comforting mourners. Those who have been in some ways seriously displaced by, by reality, by a changed circumstance. So he comes upon a makom. The reader knows, uh-oh, makom. We know if it's a makom, Sums up, right? Yaakov, presumably, the way this is written, Yaakov does not know that. Vayelensham, and he lies down to sleep there, right? So all these verbs are coming one, in, one after the other. Kivahashemesh, because the sun sets. According to rabbinic midrash, God causes the sun to set at this moment. As soon as Jacob gets to this spot, God dims the lights so and brings down the sun. It could be noon, but, but because Yaakov comes to the, the place, God like switches off the sun, like brings down the sun, which is a lovely image in a way, isn't it, of dimming the lights. What, what, what is the suggestion of dimming the lights? With someone. Intimacy. Romance. Intimacy. If you want to be intimate, you, you darken the place a little bit. There's a difference, right, in how we relate. Think about what's going to happen to Yaakov in the night of his wedding. Yes? He marries. He goes to bed with his bride. And in the morning, behold... It was Leah, <laughs> all right? So, um, He's getting paid off. <laughs> careful what you ask for, for you may get what's coming to you. He got Leah. <laughs> 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 he must have, he must have known. He got Leah. I will definitely use that. Let the record reflect that the octogenarian in the room, one of them, probably the most experienced, (laughs) the one who knows the most about such things, Richard. But save us. I mean, I can sort of buy it being. I can sort of buy the thought of uh, maybe the sun was caused to set a little earlier than normal, but. Uh, I would I would have thought that had it happened in the middle of the day, he would have been sort of like kind of like clued in. Well, or no, that's, is this an, is this an eclipse? Is this, I mean, what's going on? I mean, why would he lie down and go to sleep? I mean, at noon, he's he's not going to be hired to go to sleep. Um, do, 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 it's dark. I guess it's, it's time for me to sleep. Time to get out my my sleeping bag. That it. Right? It doesn't say that it could have that it was any 
earlier times. No, of course not. But for the rabbis, this is right. This is a. This is a. This is the. This is what they do. This is their their favorite game. You, you know, people are obsessed with words with friends. The rabbis are obsessed with words in Torah. Right? Like it's you know, like we just take it for granted that you're going to do this little thing all day with words. That's what the rabbis do all day. It's words with God and words with Hevra, words with friends. I like it. There's a sermon in there somewhere. All right, so let's go back to the words. So he lies down there, you know, presumably to what one does when one goes to sleep. Vayikach me'avne hamakom. And he took from among the stones of the place. Right? Vayasem me'roshtav. And he put, right, he, he took from the stones of the place and put it under his head. Vayishkav b'makom hahu. And he slept. Oh, no, and he lay down, sorry. And he, and he lay down b'makom hahu in that makom. Three times we get makom. And you know Torah doesn't mess around with words, right? It is, makom here is critical. What we know that Yaakov doesn't know, but that every Israelite hearing this story knew, is that this place is going to be named at the end of our tale, Beit El. Beit El has a long, venerable history in the region as a sacred cult site. As early as 3500 BCE, there's already um, a flat plateau at the top of one of the hills there, that is a sacred shrine. 3500 BCE. So the Canaanites, you know, whoever's, yeah, whoever's kind of hanging out in that region. Um, and later, you know, a more elaborate shrine is built there. And, and it, Beit El has a long history of being a sacred site. So this is a makom of makom. Isolated areas, a church will be called Bethel. Right. There you go. Right? Where is this geographically on your map? Where is this geographically on my map? There's a Bethel in Pennsylvania. It's it's just that the the city that it is identified with is just north of Jerusalem. So he'd gone already. From Beersheba to Jerusalem, which is already, I mean, you know, right. Well, it's not, it's not that big, but it's big enough that he ain't, he ain't at home. It wasn't the first night. It was not the first night. Thank you. Yes, exactly. He's been traveling for a while. Um, excuse me, isn't this where we think that the temple was eventually built? According to Rabbinic Midrash, this is exactly the spot where the temple would be built, Beit El, the house of God will be built, literally, which is why he names it Beit El according to Rabbinic Midrash. What else happened exactly on that spot, therefore? Go back. The Akedah. Thank you. Do I need to open it now? I don't know. Okay. Okay. Um, How can you resist that? <laughs> Reuben, you are far more important to me. 
than this envelope. There's nothing in this envelope that could come close. So the Akedah happens on that spot. Later, the temple will be built on that spot, according to Midrash, right? So there's a gorgeous Midrash that Aviva Zorenberg quotes that says, what are these stones that he's taking? Any guesses? Go back. These are the stones of the altar on which his father was almost killed. It's really beautiful. Because think about, right, the sin, what, right, our story, you know, Torah and Hebrew and everything is all about depth it's not, and letters. It's not about breadth. That's what makes this gorgeous to me, right? That these are not just stones, God forbid. These are the stones that were used to make the Mizbeach, the altar on which Isaac was bound and almost killed by his father, Avraham. Grandfather Avraham, the trauma that happens with the son Yitzchak. Now Yaakov comes to do what? To synthesize the two generations before him, those experiences. And that is how he becomes the patriarch. And that is how he is able to then take it forward. Each of the others only had a few, you know, children. Jacob's going to have 13 13. 12 of them are male. So 12 of them will be the tribes, right? So, but it took Yaakov coming back to that place. It gets even better, Sarah. It gets even better in the tradition. What does it say about those stones? It says he takes me'avne from the stones, plural. So just Open your imagination to go deep rather than what it probably means. He took from the stones of the place. For Viva Zorenberg, looking at the Midrashic tradition, it doesn't mean he took one from among the stones. The plural means he took 12 stones and put them under his head. And according to the Midrash, says to himself, if they fuse in the night... I will know that I can lead a people that will come together out of 12 sons, out of 12 tribes. And if not, right, he, he, he's not had his own experience of the divine yet. He doesn't, he's just listening to his father and his grandfather, right? Like, they're the ones who are telling him all this business about, and his mother is telling him, you're going to inherit, and da, 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 da. He's had no experience of yud heh vav what does he know about any of this business? He's an imposter. He fooled his father into being the patriarch. He tricked his brother out of the birthright. He's a complete imposter. So he takes 12 stones and in his deep insecurity, puts them under his head, needing some kind of proof that he truly is going to be or deserves to be, if you will, the patriarch. So he puts them under his head and he lies down in that place and he dreams and I'll, I'll ruin it for you, but um, when he wakes up, his head is on the stone. So according to Midrashic tradition, they fused in the night and he wakes up and realizes 
that it was not just a dream, it truly is a vision, it truly is that he's going to be the patriarch. So also think about, think about the moment of the Akedah, think about for us, we've talked about it beautifully in here, think about what that did between father and son. We know according to Midrashic tradition what it did to Sarah, don't we? It killed her. So the very thing that is the, the moment of solidifying the relationship between Avraham and God, what does it do to this family? It breaks, it fragments, it shatters in some ways this family. This is the experience of it synthesizing and coming back together in Yaakov, who's going to be able right, to take those experiences of breakage and shattering and, and create out of that what's going to be uh, a nation. Yes? Um, okay. So I'm, I'm certain that there's a lot of conversation among the rabbis, or has been, about what would have happened if um, he hadn't stolen the birthright and if he hadn't uh, you know, become the, the person that he's ultimately becoming, what would have happened? Really, I, they don't go there very much. Mm. They, they discuss a lot, Rivka, that it wasn't Yaakov. He does the first one. He's crafty enough, and according to the rabbis, virtuous and cares enough about the patriarchate to, to, to take it from Esau the first time. But the second time, it is Rivka. So there's a lot of discussion about the fact that we tend to see women as, you know, disempowered in this culture and in this society, and it's very clear according to our tradition. And then the rabbis, you know, talk about it at great length that that, that is just not the case. It is Rivka who is the architect, you know, of the final coup de grace. Um, I, I think if, the, uh, if we follow the Midrashic tradition of the stones or the stone that his head was on mm-hmm. sleeping, being of the altar uh, that Yitzhak was almost sacrificed on, um, in a way, this is a way of legitimizing the connection between Jacob and, and Isaac in the sense of in the sense of hundred percent in the sense of he's putting his head on the stone where his father was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Hundred percent. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Lest there be any doubt. That Aesop might have been a legitimate choice. There is an actual physical connection. Nice. Nice. Sometimes we use stories as vehicles to lead us to another point. In this case, uh, even with um, the Israelites left Egypt, how did they get there? We have the story of Jacob leaving Egypt so that they could eventually lead out. And Mm -hmm. we have it all through Torah. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Let's go to verse 12. Vayachalom. And he dreamt. Vahine. This is always our word for yo. That's my technical translation of this word. Yo. Sulam mutsav arza. There was a sulam unique in the Bible here. So what is the sulam? We're not sure exactly, but looking at Akkadian cognates and looking at other you know, parent languages of Hebrew, 
Um, either we're dealing with the kind of ladder that would have descended from here to the underworld, you know, um, in other mythologies of the region, and or we are dealing with the ramp that was the way you got up the ziggurat. Everybody knows what a ziggurat is? The temples in the ancient Near East, right, um, that, that went high up towards the heaven because that is the meeting place between the God and humanity, right? There's a reason Torah is given on a mountain, right? You have, that, you have to have the high-esque place be the place the divinity meets humanity. But to get up there, you had a ramp of stairs going all the way around the ziggurat to the top. Possibly this is what is meant by sulam. Yes. So it's, it's very well attested in the region. So we don't know which one of those it is. Like the climbing ladder like this, you know, that, that you have on the side of a ship or you have, you know, from one height to, that you drop down to the next to let people climb up. Or the more stately kind of, you know, um, staircase that you see on a, sula, on a ziggurat. In either case, it is clearly something that allows you to ascend and to descend. So that's what he sees. Mutsav. We know this from what we're going to see in a minute. Matseva. We, we talk about it whenever we get to that parsha. Atem nitzavim hayom. And I've told you, it's not just standing there. It's, ugh, like it's plant and planted the way you would a monument. Right? That's how the sulam is alza, towards the earth. Okay? So, so it's mutzav, it's set towards the earth. Verosho, but its top, or and its top, its head, magia hashamaima, reaches heavenward. Whenever you get a hay at the end of a uh, place like land sky if you put a hay at the end it means towards eretz is ground or aretz right alza with a hay means towards the earth shamaima with a hay at the end means towards the shamaim right so and it's so its head reaches hashamaima towards the heavens Vehine and yo, malache Elohim olim veyordimbo, and agents, messengers of Elohim, go up and come down on it. Yes. All right. Does that mean the messengers are actually on the earth? Ha <laughs> ha! Very nice. Very nice. So the rabbi's first question about this is, wait a minute, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't it be yordim ve'olim, right? That, that we see messengers coming down the ladder and then going back up? Any thoughts on that? That there are angels amongst and messengers amongst us. That there are messengers amongst us. And what are they doing? Messaging. <laughs> Angels are among us. Tweeting, twittering, um, posting. Angels are among us all the time. They are here all the time. 
We just don't see them. But Yaakov can in this makom. In the ancient world, it was understood that in certain places, the veil between this reality and the other reality on the other side is thinner. That is what makes those places sacred. The veil is just a little thinner. And when Yaakov goes into this other state, leaving the you know, state we're in most of the time, in that place, he's able to see through the veil. And any of us, it's like putting on 3D glasses. If any of us were to do that, we would all see the angels going and coming and coming and going all the time. It's happening everywhere. This is one interpretation, but it's one I love. Um, which is, but, but in that spot, it's not that they were in that spot doing that, right? It's that Yaakov, because of the place and because of his openness and because of maybe his vulnerability, the danger, being on his mission, just having accepted or taken right, the right to be the patron, because of all these things, the veil is thinner and Yaakov's able to see what's happening all the time. So t- tonight, I mean tonight, yeah, tonight and tomorrow is the bar mitzvah of someone here in the synagogue whose father worked on the TV show Fringe. How many of you saw Fringe? Alternate realities. I can't wait to give this to our Torah tomorrow. Because that's what this is. This is science fiction, people. This is Yaakov seeing the alternate reality that's always happening all around us. We just don't see it. So they're going up and coming down because they're always here doing their business, right? Another interpretation is that this is not just messengers, just angels. These are the angels. Which angels? The angels of, because every civilization has a guardian angel. For the rabbis, right? So, of course, their reality holds true for Torah, of course. So, if every nation has a guardian angel, perhaps these are specifically the guardian angels of, any guesses, if they're going up and then coming down, any guesses, who, what nations? Jacob's son. Hmm? Mm-mm. Well, maybe, hey, hang on, not, not no, but in this, what did you say? Or who are oppressing Jacob's descendants. They are in ascendancy. Rome, for one. Babylon. Right, you know, in other words, those who have oppressed, possibly in the past, but certainly in the present and in the future, the people Israel, the assurance here, it's a metaphor from God to Yaakov. And the assurance is what? What goes up, I promise you, will come down. And here we sit 3,000 years later. It was an accurate vision, right? That however bad it looks for the others who are rising and oppressing my people, just wait, Yaakov. It's, they will come back down, those angels. For that interpretation... To refer to them as angels would yeah. seem 
just sort of forget that part of how we usually no, think about angels. No, every nation has an angel. I see. Doesn't matter that they're our enemy. They still get an angel. Remember, we're Jews. I love this about us. Every nation, even our enemies, have an angel that are protective of them. Um, my grandmother always talks about her guardian angel. So I, I sort of see this story also not necessarily as the veil that separates reality from the spiritual, but also as the way we can choose to see things that are very mundane. Um, you know, I always hear, it was a miracle that I got there right as the mailman was there because I forgot my mailbox key. And miracles are in the eyes of the beholder. So he, you know, he's seeing this stuff, but we can choose, you know, to see things as miracles or just kind of go through our day, blah, and just expecting some sort of, it happened, it didn't happen. So I kind of like, I, I, that reminds me of, of that attitude. Lovely. And, and that, for some people, is about indu- that he puts the rock under his head for the famous practice of dream incubation. Who sleeps on a rock? Yeah. Does anybody you know, even if they're camping, do you go, oh, wow, like I'm so tired. Let me get a rock from over there and put it under my head so I can sleep better. Nobody does that. He's putting it under his head in order to induce a state of being able to see what we normally don't call miraculous. He wants to see through the lens of, you know, an alternate way of experiencing reality. So I I know what you're saying, but but I think there are traditional readings of this that are very close to that, right? That are saying this is all purposeful because he wants to see differently. He wants to, you know to be in that state where he can appreciate it as a miracle. Um, And that took, you know, changing his state of mind. I think that's exactly what you're talking about. That we can choose, we don't have to put a rock under our head, we can choose to shift the way we think about things and appreciate the miraculous. Those angels are everywhere doing their miraculous business all the time. We can choose to see it that way or we can call it coincidence. Because really, there's no difference in what happened. The difference is one of perspective and meaning. Is there meaning in what happened? And for Jacob, that's an essential shift. For each of us, every day, it's an essential shift. Isn't it, um, this comes out of my ignorance of Torah, but, yeah, so my question is, in order for Jacob to be a leader, he has to hear the voice of God. He has to have intimacy because all our other leaders, or in the case of women, have have had direct communication. So this is this is where he gets it mm-hmm. to have the confidence to go on. Yes, yes. So, but that I mean, is that articulated? Is yes. It, In the rabbinic tradition, 100%. Yeah, he has to have his encounter with the divine. He has to have his conversation in order to live into the call. He has to be called, right? right? He has to have an intimacy. And this is, and what's interesting for the rabbis who don't understand it as dream incubation, he's taken by complete surprise. And we're going to get some language about that. So remind me to focus on that when we get there. 
I kind of wonder, he's been wandering through the desert for so many days and... Um, <laughs> dehydration. Like, yeah, dehydration, but also, you know, it sounds like an LSD experience or something. He probably ate some plant. Okay. Two things. Uh, one I want to ask you, because it seems that uh, Yaakov has quite a number of interactions with Malachim, like more than any other character in the, in the Torah. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that. And also with, with Laura, um, I think we have an idea that all angels are good or like be an angel and get me, you know, a cup of coffee or something like that. But the, uh, if you remember uh, with the destruction of Sodom, uh, Malach, Malach, uh, Malach was sent to destroy Sodom, like the angel of death, and we have that you call the prosecuting angel? Yeah, it's very interesting. In, in rabbinic angelology, yeah, angels are not good. Angels are angels. Like I, right. And so there is not good or bad about them. Satan, Satan is a prosecuting angel. That's what Satan means, is the prosecutor. So there is an angel who's assigned to prosecute Israel in front of God all the time, right? So, and the angels protest us getting Torah, right? The angels go to God and say, how could you possibly give those monkeys? They're just glorified monkeys. How could you give them the precious Torah, the blueprint of the universe? What are you thinking? How chutzpahdik is that, A, but, you know, but how could you give Torah to people? And what does God say? Do you murder each other? Do you steal from each other? What do you need Torah for? The, the angels have no free will. They're just doing Correct. You don't need Torah. We're superior in that we have free will. Like we're closer to God, more godlike in that we have free will. The angels do not. So we are more like God when we choose to behave in godly ways. Uh-huh. Correct. And the angels are extraordinarily jealous of that. Extraordinarily jealous. They are not just good. They are, is the mailman good? When the mailman brings you something good? Yes. I don't know what's in here. I'm going to feel differently about the mailman if this is a really big bill. Right? I mean, seriously, the, the messenger, the phrase don't shoot the messenger is all about, because in the ancient world, you got bad news, you know, you took off the head of the messenger, right? Because so it's, they're messengers, that's it. So it's a very important point. Also, <coughs> they are designed to be frightening. The Kruvim, with their wings, are not Happy little chubby babies with wings that make people fall in love. The Kruvim are a warning. Do not encroach on this place or else. The Kruvim were terrifying. Scary. Scary. The Sphinx. Think the Sphinx. Right? That's Srafim are like the Sphinx. Mixed, mixed metaphors of things with wings and scary claws. and Right? Angels are not... Happy, lovely, cherubic things in our tradition. Richard? Wait, wait, can, can you answer, I'm sorry, the oh. question is why, why 
why was Jacob, you know, he was then told to go back to his homeland eventually, and then on the way there he fights with a, a Malach. Why do you, what do you think it was about ya Yaakov that he had all these angel experiences and, and being awake too? Not what do you think, Pam? <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think? Well, my thought is uh, there's something in his nature, something about him, all these patriarchs and matriarchs, but something that maybe he is at a higher level, that he's able to connect and see what uh, someone not at that level cannot. That, I, yeah. I know, for, I'm curious what you think. So for me, there's like thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. For me, we've got Avraham, We've, then we've got this business with Yitzhak. And for me, I think I really do see Yaakov as needing to figure out how to take right, those things and fuse them in himself. And, and he does struggle. He struggles terribly. And his whole life, for me, in the recent years, I've read Yaakov's life as tragic. I don't see Yaakov as successful. Everything he loves is taken from him. He leaves his mother. He never sees him again, her again. He just wants one. He goes to Lavan and says, please, in this week's Parsha, just give me Rachel. You know, I'll work seven years. And then he works seven years. And they seemed as if a day to him. And he rushes to Lavan and says, give me Rachel that I might come into her. That's all he wants is that bond. He wants finally to meet with Rachel in intimate oneness. And what happens? Leah's inserted forever into his marriage, and he winds up with four wives, mothering his 12 children, the beloved wife dying in childbirth on the side of the flippin' road, and then the favorite child from her, her firstborn, what happens? He's taken from Yaakov, who is told he's dead, only to discover in his old age that he was alive the whole time in Egypt. And this was done by his other sons. There's just, when I look at the story of Yaakov, it's taken me time, but as I've gotten older, I, I don't, I see it as tragic. Yaakov, is, Yaakov struggles his whole life. And those malachim, for me, are part of that constant engaging with the push-pull, you know, the longing and the disappointment, the, the achieving and then the tearing away that happens for Yaakov, always. Um, Yaakov, who was never born into the patriarch <clears throat> position. You know, like, for some people, life just kind of falls into place. You know, like, born with a silver spoon in your mouth. It, life just flows. Other folk, they just struggle from day one. You know, just existentially. I mean, I think even of myself that, you know, you've heard me say before that, you know, I'm not Amy Bernstein. Amy Bernstein never got born. I assumed her identity. What that means forever is an existential struggle that other people don't have. They get born who they are. And so I think for Yaakov, there's just this constant existential wrestling with reality that is never fulfilled. 
sorry, that was a very long answer. Doesn't, to doesn't he say that at the end of his life, that his years were hard and long, and he himself says he's very unhappy? Mm -hmm. it's, it's that last moment with Yaakov, you know, that, I mean, with Yosef, that, you know, we get a sense of, okay, at the very end, there's, there's happiness for him. But what is it to have happiness at the very end, looking back on, you could have had this for 40 years, but you didn't know? You know, it's just, the, the irony of it is so cutting um, for me. Mickey? On many levels, we're talking about life in general. We all go through the same thing in, in different ways. We have our downs and our ups. Even the silver spoons, they have their downs also. They do? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so for some, the interpretation of the sulam is actually more what you were saying earlier, that, that this is a representation of the vicissitudes of the 12 tribes, that life is going to go up and down and up and down and up and down. But Yaakov... We haven't even gotten to the, the rest of the vision, so let's go there. It's good. I mean, it's good that we haven't gotten there, but, but let's, let's hold this interpretation that it's actually his descendants, right, on that ladder. The, the, the angels represent the angels of, of his 12 sons. And Vahine, verse 13, and lo, that's more elegant than yo, and lo, Yud hey vav hey nitzav alav. Again, this word about being kind of firmly planted. What's planted? Yud hey vav hey alav. What is alav? On. Huh? On. On. Or on it. Hebrew is a gendered language. The latter is he. Jacob is he. Right? So yud hey vav hey is planted where? On him or on it? We don't know. What we know is that yud hey vav hey is clearly present. I mean, this is what Yaakov ascertains, right? In the vision, right? The, a lot of translations say next to it or next to him, but it really says on it or on him. On the stone. Ha 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 ha. On the stone, on the ladder, the on the place, on Yaakov. It is lovely in its ambiguity. So. Somehow, Yudhe is firmly planted somewhere, everywhere, lovely Laura, everywhere, right? Vayomer, here we go. This is Yaakov's theophany. He is having his first experience of the divine speaking. Ani Adonai, I am Yudhe Elohe Avraham Avicha, the God of Avraham, your ancestor. Father is not, right? Av means also ancestor. The Elohe Yitzchak, and I am the God of Isaac. 
Ha'aretz asher atashochev aleha, the ground upon which you are lying, lecha et nena olazar acha. To you, I will give her, and to your seed. So he's lying on the ground, and God talks about this land I will give to your seed. Right? This incredible image of he's spread out on the ground. His seed will be planted and will grow here. The land, by the way, he's on his way out of. And your seed will be like the dust of the earth. We're getting the hay at the end of all these words. Yama, what's yam? Sea. So if I put a hay at the end of it, what did I tell you that means? Towards the sea. Yama, vekedma, which is north, Safon, I mean south, Safona, sorry, I'm so confused. So this way to the sea, that way, the other way, right? But Safona and north, Vanegba, where's the Negev? In the south. And to the south, Ufaratsta, this verb, right? Lifrots means, you know when you have a, a, a plant that's got a seed pocket, what would you call a pod? What happens to a pod for the seeds to get out? It bursts open. That's the word here in Hebrew. You, you, your seed will burst this way, that way, that way, and that way. Everywhere. It will bust out. That kind of image brings with it, says Aviva Zornberg, a breakage. Right? Like, what happens to the pod in this scenario? <laughs> right? Like, there is, it's, first of all, broken. It's busted open. It is fragmented. And it's kind of then dead and useless. You know? But, um, not useless, but... Um, it's done what it's supposed to do. Right. So what do you call, what do you call that? What do you call something that is... <clears throat> It's, you've used it for what it's necessary for. It's obsolete. It's obsolete. Once Yaakov parades, right, he's obsolete in a way, which is kind of my sense of Yaakov. His, his sons manipulate him, who manipulated his father, but they go a whole nother level, right? And... and he becomes kind of obsolete. He, if you look at the, as we go forward, think, keep this in mind as we look at the stories of what Yaakov does. Yep. Right? When, they, when the brothers come complaining to him about Joseph, what does he do? do? Do you know what I mean? When he comes in from the field and Leah says, I purchased an evening with you for a mandrake. You'll be sleeping in my tent tonight. What does Jacob do? Okay. Right? Like, so, right, you know, there's a sense of, he is kind of the pod sack, you know, that just kind of, um, but in any sense, there is a breakage. There is a busting out that has to happen, which is why 
This word begins our parsha, Vayetze. Yaakov has to go out. Yaakov has to leave. Abraham does too, in a different way. Abraham's coming to the place where all of this is going to happen. Yaakov has to leave, has to bust open everything. He has to leave his mother, his father. He's kicked out by them, right? He's, he's pushed. He's thrown out of the nest, right? There is this bursting forth that is not just happy and not just coming into one's own, right? There's a sense that he's, he's breaking what has been in order to move forward. Is, is there any parallel between this notion of uh, breakage here and uh, the Kabbalistic tradition, the Kabbalistic notion of the spheres shattering, and that you have that you have this breakage that can that ultimately has to be made whole again? So the kalim, the vessels, are what shatter that right that contain the light. Um, I think universally there's an understanding that a breaking has to happen for other things to happen. Right. Yes, so I mean, universally okay, speaking, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, I but, think but they don't make a tie. There's no tie that I've seen between them, but I, I've not seen it. But, but I think universally the impulse that we see here is the same one that we see in Kabbalah, that... that that if things just kind of stay whole, nothing grows, nothing new happens, nothing unfolds. There has to be a shattering, if you will, in order for really radical n- newness to, to have a, a way of coming into being. You have to break your water for a birth. 100%. Break your glass at a wedding. 100%. This tragedy of his life just seems payback, constant payback for what he did to become who he was. It costs us to become who we we want to be. And it costs in ways that we have no idea when we enroll for that program, when we go on that trip, when we, you know... It, when we get pregnant, when we, you know, when you marry, when you, it, we want it, and it comes with costs we cannot possibly begin to imagine. Would we do it had we known? There is a huge midrashic tradition that we're going to go to right now. So hold that when we. So hold the surprise element and hold the the. Would I do it if I knew the cost element? My bat mitzvah student tomorrow afternoon is speaking exactly to that. That's her interpretation of this episode. I'll show you where she finds it. You um, mean what, would I do something if I... Had I known, I would not have gone to sleep here. Or stolen the blessing. Or stolen the blessing. This is what... All right, so let's, so let's go there. Clearly, we're not going to get to his... Meeting Rachel. All right. So, la 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 la. Uveniv rechuvecha, and will be blessed through you. Kol mishpachot ha'adama, all the families of the earth. Uvizar echa, and through your seed. Same thing we see with Avraham. Right. 
All the peoples of the world will be blessed through you. We discussed that at length. Listen to the podcast if you'd like to know more about that. Vehine, and lo, anochi imach. I notice what's used of God here. What is God called here in verse 15? Anochi. This is not Adonai. This is not Elohim. This is not Yudhe Vavhe. This is the word Anochi. How many God names do we have for God? Lots. Lots. So there's more than 70 more than it, it, that are used routinely. Anochi is the word God introduces God's self with. Because you could say ani, I. Anochi is I, right? So anochi, God speaks the Ten Commandments and says, anochi Adonai Elohecha. So for the rabbis, all of it is contained in the first olive of anochi. For the rabbis, the Israelites heard nothing more than the Aleph of Anochi, and then freaked out. <laughs> and it's silent. And it's silent. So Anochi carries a lot of weight rabbinically in terms of what it means. But let's, let's hold it as we go to the end of this episode, because I think it's important. I don't think, I mean, the tradition understands it as important. Vehine, Anochi imach, I am with you. Ushmarticha bechol asher telech. I will be with you and I will protect you in every place you go. And I will bring you back. I will return you to this earth, to this place. Hazot, right? Adama Hazot, this piece of ground. Kilo e'ezavcha. I will not leave you, right? So for I will not abandon you. I will not leave you. Ad asher im asiti et asher dibarti lechan. Until I have done what I have said to you just now. I will not leave you. I will protect you wherever you go. The angels, the vicissitudes of all of it going up and down. What is right there? Always yudhevavhe. That this is the meaning of the sulam. That no matter what's going up and down, no matter what's going on, the constant and the protective force, yud vav hey is right there. So it's so interesting because I've been waiting till we got to this point. It's You're saying, I will not leave you in this commentary. It says, I will not let you go. Interesting. Yeah. Very different. Interesting. Meaning. Yes. La'azov is to leave. Very interesting. I will not let you go. Same thing the one that he wrestles is saying. I'm not going to let you. Because you know, Yaakov says, let the, the, the thing he wrestles says, let me go. Well, that's like saying, I won't, you know, take my arms out. I'll keep holding you. Right? No matter where you run to. This one says, I will not let go of you. Yeah, that's quite different, isn't it? Well, right. So, because that's what it literally is, is to let go. Right, but that—that's how one. If you're doing it to a person, it's that you're leaving. It's, so it's it's very very. It's a lovely it's a lovely translation. Or you can't run away from this. But uh, that too, that too. 
So let, let's go on only because I want to make sure we conclude this episode because it has to be finished or we don't get it, right? So Jacob awoke from his sleep. What is the first thing he says? Achain, right? Kind of, whoa. Yesh Adonai Bamakom Hazeh. There is Yud Hey Vav in this place. Va'anochi. But I lo yadati. But I didn't know. What's the other sense of to know in this sense? I didn't understand. All right. And Vayira, verse 17. This goes to how we know, right? He was awed. He was shocked. This is shock and awe, right? Yaakov experiences shock and awe. Vayomar, and he says, Manorah hamakom hazeh. How awesome is this place? Now, I have cheated this part of the text because I know we don't have much time. Vast rabbinic literature written, particularly by the mystics, on this because, first of all, he, he awakes, and it's from, when he awakens from this other state is when he understands, right, that there's yud he vav bamakom hazeh in this place. Va'anochi, this is the disjunctive of, but I didn't know. So for the mystics, this is the situation for every single one of us, every single moment of every single day. God is in this place and we don't know it. It takes work. It takes shifting our perspective to understand, ladaat, to, to know in that deep, intimate sense of knowing that yud hey vav is bamakom hazeh, is in this place, this moment, this situation. And he gets it, right? That this is the place of God. Beit Elohim, Vezesha'ar Hashemayim. This is a gate to the heavens. For the rabbis, every place is Makom Hazah, is a gateway to heaven. And Vayashkem Yaakov Baboker, he wakes up in the morning. So, what was the waking up we just had? Spiritual. Lovely, Laura. If he just, he's waking up in the morning, then the waking up we just had could not be waking up in the morning. Torah never repeats itself. I mean, unless it's saying something. So he woke up from the dream. Have you ever had a dream in the middle of the night that you go, whoa? You, you kind of go, wow, I didn't, wow, oh, oh, wow. And then you go back to sleep. And then you wake up in the morning. So this is a different awakening. Laura, lovely. He has a spiritual awakening. When he wakes up in the morning... He takes asher sam He takes the fused stone from under his head, and he makes it a monument, a matzeva. In the ancient world, lots of 
things that this represents, often it represents the deity in a, in a shrine. He takes it and he pours shemen al roshav, and he pours oil over it, right, from the top down. Why does he do this? Wasn't that a custom to uh, anoint somebody? Uh, so, make them, uh, uh, what, a king or whatever? So, so they anoint kings, they anoint priests, they anoint the vessels for the tabernacle. It is clear that, that Yaakov understands this as a revelatory experience because he's anointing this matseva in a way that suggests he knows this is now, this is a holy, this rock that he's had this vision on, that he's had this encounter with God on is now, right, it is a witness to the experience. And so he takes it and he anoints it, being told that he will, you know, be coming back. And we're not going to have time to look at the, 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 the conversation he has with God uh, after this. Um, but uh, one second. So when it says, Anochi lo yadati, God was in this place, but I didn't know it. One tradition is, that it, the Midrash says, had I known, I would not have disgraced the holiness of the place by going to sleep. That's disgraceful. You don't sit in the presence of the royalty and fall asleep, right? That, that's just, you don't do that. So had I, that's what this means. I didn't know. If I'd have known you, Vavi was here, I never would have gone to sleep. And Oviva Zornberg has this gorgeous discussion of the angels going up and down. They're tormenting him. They're like, see, that punky little human? He's nothing but a monkey. What is he doing? He's in a holy place. He's at the entrance of heaven and earth. And what is he doing? He's sleeping. And they're like, they're like tormenting. They're like all over him. You know, going, look at this. It's disgusting. And looking at God, like, can you believe this? This is what they bring. And this is Yaakov, who is the synthesis between the spiritual and all of that stuff that is the angels and his destiny and is all of that. And he's lying on the ground, right? He is the meeting place between the earthy Adam, the human being who's nothing essentially but mud, and the, and the angelic, right? The, the supernal realms. That is what the human being is. And that he needed to change, and he needed to sleep to experience this and to, to have the other, other um, sense of being in order to awaken to it. He couldn't have just gotten it being in his regular old place. He needed to alter his consciousness to get it. So my bar mitzvah student says... What he means is, I, she, we read the Midrash of, you know, had I known, I wouldn't have gone to sleep. She interprets that, it's that to mean, I wouldn't have given myself this vision. I wouldn't have done it because it's going to wind up costing him way too much. And that the pressure, she, she's, her whole talk is about pressure, that, that had he known, like, the pressure of it is too much now to live into 
being the patriarch and living into the divine call, and he's going to be the father of a nation. It's too, it's too much. I mean, obviously she's projecting her, but that's the point of Torah, right? Thank God she's projecting her story and gets it that this is about her. Um, but for me, I'm like, I wonder, right? There are some decisions we make. We want it so badly. We don't, we can't, and we shouldn't understand all of the consequences. Because if we did, would we do it? And, and therefore, we would retard our own growth, right? This is, you know, the rabbis say that every one of us as a fetus knows everything and knows all of Torah. And that when we're born, the angel who's assigned to it touches us here and we forget. And that's what this mark on our lip is. The indentation is where the angel touched each one of us. Um, and, and, and why? What, yeah. I had an Orthodox teacher at Yeshiva whose baby was born without this and then died. Oh so it was this, on the one hand, awful, but on the other hand, for her, it was like, because the baby was an angel and hadn't forgotten and couldn't live in this world because it was, it meant, it was meant to be here. But so, um, so touched here, we forget. And so, but why? Why do we forget? Why do we know it all and then have to forget it all? Like, that's a little crazy. Because because if we knew, would we possibly be able even to take those first steps hanging onto the coffee table? Like, you know, like if we knew everything that was coming? Just not even, the, not even the intimate experiences that are personal to each of us, but... You know, do we really know what it's going to be like when, you know, when we start to lose parents and we start to lose friends and we start to lose mobility? You know, all of those things, they're, they're at some level... You don't want to know about it in advance. <laughs> you don't want... Look, look, I, I'm right now in my pantry, in my kitchen, is the test that if I scrape the inside of my cheek, I can find out my biological heritage. Ask me how long it's been in the pantry. Why? Because the other thing I'll know are, is my propensity for disease. How likely am I to get cancer genetically? How likely am I, right? So it's like, it's like the, does it mean necessarily I will? Of course not. But, like, but there's some things that if we just know them, it changes forever, right? Our ability to function. You know, there's a... There's a need to be ignorant in some ways, right? Or else, how do you be regular? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you just do the normal business of life? And there's also a fantastic joy in not knowing and learning and discovering and finding out and having to make decisions and knowing, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that one was a so good that's the adventure of living, and you wouldn't have that if you knew it. And that's, it's, it's so interesting you say that, because Aviva Zornberg brings uh, a quote from um, Sartre, I think it was, that, oh no, that's about missingness, being gone. That she brings somebody else who talks about what is joy. It's following terror all the way through mm-hmm. till you're through it. That's joy. Mm-hmm. Right? And so on the so they're not... They're not distinct, right? In some ways, right, the joy is of the absolute terror of making the decision. And then once you're on the other side, it's like, wow, 
right? Like in the discoveries that happen and the things that open up only on the other side of do I move to LA or not? <laughs> what am I doing? Right? Like, so, but like, wow, what happened? Right? And that, that joy is about that, about that discovery that's on the other side or not, and not meaning other, meaning, you know, through uh, the terror, which I just, which I just love. All right. I know we need to, to close. <laughs> that is a whole nother thing, right? All together. Holy buckets. Vayetze, Jacob's dream. The angels going up and down on the golden ladder did not change Jacob's, Jacob's destination, nor did the promises of God establish his manhood. But after many years, when he had won Rachel, when he was a bearded man, master of tents and flocks, it is written that Jacob dreamed again. This time he called together his family to go to meet the brother whom he had wronged, to turn again to the land and to the God of his fathers. Maturity may come with work and wisdom with years, but let us always remember the dream and the vision that are the gifts of God. Let us remember how our ancestor Jacob, in the years of his maturity, left the place of his success to return to the country in the ideals of his youth. We pray that the glitter of all the wealth we have worked to possess will not blind our eyes to our own inner vision. We pray for dreams in the years of our strength and for strength in the days of our dreams the poet Ruth Brim of Blessed Memory. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.